So I said yesterday something like, when you focus on your experience, as opposed to your thoughts, your life changes. It's the first part I can't really remember. So it's essentially everything I just said is an answer to that question. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that when you shift from focusing on the content of your experience to your relationship to your experience, your life changes. You begin to be able to respond to experience rather than react habitually to experience. You begin to find a slice of freedom. It's <laughs> a good question. Does this mean a Buddhist cannot be an activist? Absolutely not. I think what it means is that we wish that all activists were Buddhists. So what I'm talking about is this capacity to respond rather than react. So it doesn't mean passivity. What it means is that the responses that we have to our experience are not uh, mired in a kind of habitual conditioning. In other words, this harks back to the quote from Alice Walker, there's a kind of creativity that can come forward in our expression rather than you'll have to excuse me for a moment if I go on a little bit of a sidebar but I don't know about you but if we look at the world right now I mean <laughs> the same old answers are just not going to cut it are they like we need something fresh and alive and real and responsive to what's actually happening. And what we're practicing in each moment is how to relate to our own experience so that our relationship to our experience is not just constantly being habitually conditioned and reactive. Grasping aversion, grasping aversion. I mean, look in the world. Look, well, that's, that's, look where that's getting us. All of the greed and aversion we see everywhere. It feels to me that what's exactly needed for activists and maybe for everybody is to be able to be present enough to be able to be freed enough from our habitual reactivity that we can bring forth something attuned, something real, something wise, something that comes out of love. So please uh, use this practice as a practice for how to engage so that all of us, no matter what we go back to or what some of you may be engaged in now, that you can do from a place of aliveness, freshness, creativity. I've, it says, you have talked about insights. While I have had them, they are often fleeting. Does this mean it's not really an insight? Or how can we integrate the lesson from our insight into our life? 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So maybe this is true for many of you. Certainly it's true for me that sometimes an insight kind of flashes in and flashes out. And sometimes I can't even remember (laughs) what it was. What I would say is that if it's a real insight, that it will uh, come back. Sometimes the initial flash of an insight is just that, it's a flash. And so the way to deepen the insight isn't to try to grasp after it, but it's to open and allow and invite the insight to return. Because you don't make insight happen. It's not a thought in the way that we think about a regular thinking, like I'm going to figure something out. That's not insight. Insight comes unbidden, right? We're walking along and all of a sudden, right? So how do we create the conditions for insight to arise? And in some ways, that's the whole point of what we're doing. When we're willing to be with, be with, be with our experience, without trying to tinker with it. (laughs) Tinker means trying to get more of the good stuff, get away from the bad stuff. Really here, open to the whole of it. That's when insight comes. So I know for myself that um, when I would go on long retreats, uh, somewhere near the end of the retreat, I would usually give myself the space to just scribble a bunch of pages of all the insights that I'd had over the course of the retreat. And so I'd write all these words down on the page. <laughs> and then, um, like, I'd go home. I'd usually close the book, and I'd go home. And a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, I'd go back to my notes and read what I said. And I'd be like, What? <laughs> The pages, it would say something like, the bird in the sky. (laughs) Wasn't that helpful. What I found more helpful was trusting that if there's an insight, it's in your cells, even if it's not yet in your thinking mind. And so the practice of really giving yourself to being here in the body, in the present, that's where the insight will resource itself from rather than trying to go after it like that. Yeah. Let me just check the time. Yeah, we're good. Oh, I forgot. I'm going to give you this one, Andrea. I got so excited. So, uh, can you, Andrea, can you see the chat? Okay, you want to take this one? It's about... Oh, neutral. Okay, yes. It seems to me that neutral feeling tone, when I explore it, usually ends up having pleasant or unpleasant feeling tone. So gradually I'm learning more about my underlying reactions to, to what's arising, not just the obvious. Now, I'd say that um, it, is, it, it, it is the case often that what we think of as neutral 
when we sit with it a little bit more, we begin to recognize it's got a subtle flavor of pleasant or unpleasant. And, and often a little bit potentially of some underlying, as, this, as the question says, underlying reactions um, that are there. Um, so that's a beautiful exploration, and I encourage you to continue that. There is neutral feeling tone. Um, the, the word neutral may not be, uh, I mean, it may, it may have a, a sense of, of blah or something like that. Uh, you know, there've been a few times when I've experienced what I would call really strong neutral feeling. Uh, and that happened when um, I was experiencing pain, experiencing a painful sensation. And then the aversion to that painful sensation entirely dropped away. Um, the experience at that point became what I would call neither pleasant nor unpleasant. You know, I wouldn't say that it was pleasant, but I wouldn't say it was unpleasant either. That's the actual translation for what neutral is. Um, so, so that's, it's, it's, I think neutral can be a subtle experience when it, it is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. There was a story, this really kind of struck me, this story, it happened um, around the time of the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Centers. I was reading some of the descriptions of people's experience who survived that attack. And one person had been in the stairwell and as the building collapsed, he, he fell, you know, it was like the, the falling with the building as it was collapsing. And he happened to be kind of thrown in a way that he, he didn't get, you know, killed by all the tumbling bricks and whatnot. But his description of that experience was that it was a very strong experience. You know, he said it felt like those rides where you're, you know, dropping, you know, those kind of amusement park rides where you're just dropping. And it was like that for a while. And he said, in the, in the article, he said, he found those amusement parks pleasant, those rides pleasant. He said, I didn't find this pleasant, but nor did I find it unpleasant. Uh, so again, a very strong sensation. And that to me evoked something in terms of what neutral actually is. That story helped me to kind of enter into. Oh yeah, there can be very strong sensation that we experience as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And that tends to happen when the mind is equanimous, when the mind is balanced. And so your kind of exploration around, is there subtle reactivity in the mind, is, is a great one. Because it, it, you know, it, as we enter into a place of more equanimity, there is the possibility of seeing more experience as neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Not that this has to be a project, you know, try to get to where things are neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Because as the Buddha said, as, as Pam mentioned, you know, the Buddha, um, actually at one point he was talking to his um, followers and he said, you know, people who are fully enlightened experience pleasant experience, experience unpleasant experience, experience neither pleasant or unpleasant experience. And people who are ordinary people experience the same pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So he clearly said that 
when you become awakened, it does not mean you will only experience pleasant or only experience neutral. But what he said, the difference between the two is that when an ordinary person experiences pleasant experience, they want more of it. There's that kind of liking, that movement to liking. When a, uh, an ordinary person experiences unpleasant experience, they want to get, get away from it. He said, when an enlightened person experiences a pleasant experience, the enlightened person experiences a pleasant experience. When an enlightened person experiences an unpleasant experience, they experience an unpleasant experience. So the mind is non-reactive. But much of our, and so the final piece I'll say is that much of our attribution of pleasant and unpleasant does come because we have a subtle reaction in the mind, or not so subtle reaction in the mind. I think I'll stop there. I wonder if you want to, because you're on this topic, the, the follow, there's another question, which is, could you talk about the difference between pleasant and like? and unpleasant and don't like. So if you want to consider it, it would be great. Yeah, sure. I'll follow up with that one. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a, you know, it's kind of a gradation it feels like to us. You know, it's like when the mind um, experiences pleasant, the habitual tendency of that is to kind of want to move towards it, to, to like it, to have a preference for it, essentially. So what I'd say is that the difference between the pleasant and the liking is that the liking is like a preference for that experience. So it's, it's different. It's, it's, it's not the same as the pleasant. It's there's pleasant and I prefer that. Or there's unpleasant and I'd prefer not to have that. So it's a very subtle kind of movement in the direction of hating, wanting to get rid of, or wanting to hold on to. The preference, we don't have to feel like we have to have it be one way or the other. Oh, I'd prefer it not be here, but it's okay. You know, that's that. So it's a subtler version. It's a subtler um, kind of place in the movement towards the clinging, the, the preference, the liking and not liking. Um, but it is a subtle um, kind of movement in the direction of that, uh, the liking, the not liking. So it's not the same. The pleasant is not the same as the liking because it is possible for pleasant to arise and it just, it's just pleasant. There's no preference for it whatsoever. It's just, well, that's what's here. And, you know, it might sound like that would be a pretty flat place to be. You know, it's like, what, what if I don't like things? I don't not like things? You know, if I, it's like, wouldn't that just be really boring? Well, it turns out that no, <laughs> it actually feels pretty rich. And the heart, and, and partly I think it feels pretty rich because the heart, When there is reactivity, when there is, you know, liking moving to wanting, moving to kind of grabbing, not liking moving to not wanting, moving to aversion, that constricts the heart. It constricts our experience. And so that intimacy that Pam talked about, we, we become less intimate with our experience. 
when there is no reactivity, we are just right with the experience, the intimacy of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It is not flat. There's just no preference. This is the, the kind of the mind that thinks that, so let's just, I'll just put it this way. So the mind that likes things, the mind that wants things, has a view in it that liking and wanting is kind of the motivator for living. You know, why would I do anything if I didn't like it and want it? And that kind of view in those, um, those mind states does not have the understanding. It's like you're, you're looking through this lens of liking and wanting, and that, that mind state has this view, this perspective, that can't open to or look from another perspective, which is there's other motivations for action, and Pam mentioned some of them earlier. Compassion is a motivation for action. Wisdom will motivate action. Generosity will motivate action. It doesn't just have to be wanting and greed or aversion that motivates action. But when the mind is suffused with uh, greed or aversion, the mind will tell you this is the only way anything will get done. And so it's deluding us. This is kind of the fundamental delusion that's embedded in greed and aversion is the belief that you need me to act. But when the greed and the aversion fall away and we see there's other there's other movements, other movements to the heart that are not based in greed and aversion that motivate action. And that, that to me is, is connected also to the, you know, can Buddhists be activists? I mean, when, when we touch into that mind that is free from greed and aversion, we meet the suffering of the world. The heart that meets the suffering of the world wants to act to alleviate it. Of course it wants to act. The Buddha didn't just sit on a hillside somewhere waiting for people to come to him. He wandered around India and talked to people. He talked to kings. He talked to ordinary people. He helped them. He stood on the battlefield trying to stop a water war. He was engaged. So I'll stop there again. <laughs> Oh, and I guess we're close to time, huh? Yeah, thank you for those responses. You saw, um, all of you, I haven't, I haven't given a Dharma talk in a while and I got a little overexcited <laughs> from the Dharma, I guess. You know? I lost some of my equanimity there, so it was a pleasant experience. But <laughs> yeah. So I'll just say that I hope that the uh, sharing from myself and Andrea about this topic um, is useful. Um, so I said at the beginning, this topic of feeling tone of Vedana, I have found in my own practice to be enormously helpful. And it's not something that we talk about a lot in traditional sort of Western psychology, um, it's a concept or a, a lens, a way of being with our experience that for some of us is a little bit um, 
a little bit unusual. And maybe for that reason alone, it can be a very interesting way to start paying attention to what's happening, to note and notice pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, to wonder, is there pleasant or unpleasant here? That allows us to get close to our experience. And as we sit in the midst of pleasant or unpleasant, and even of grasping or aversion, we may, as we both have talked about, we may begin to have some revelation of uh, views, opinions, perspectives that we maybe didn't even know we had that keep that wheel in motion. And it's really by seeing it clearly that it begins to become dismantled, that we begin to find our way through, not by grasping, not by pushing away, but by this ability to be present and open and curious. And I would just add, in my experience, to like fall down and get up, fall down and get up, meaning, whoops, I went too far. That's okay. Whoops. <laughs> whoops, I went too far that way. That's how we find our way. We don't just plug in and go, whoop. That's not being human. That's something else. But to really understand that this, this way of engaging with our life is the way in which our life itself becomes our practice, becomes the ground of our insight, as someone said, becomes the ground of our waking up. So whatever you have on your plate, so to speak, this evening and through tomorrow, please um, play with and experiment with uh, this lens that we've been introducing of feeling tone or Vedana and see, see what's revealed for you, see what comes. So we'll wish you a, um, something, an insightful <laughs> evening and night and morning, and we will be back here with all of you for um, uh, the third establishment of mindfulness tomorrow morning at 8.30. So, thank you. <laughs>